Welcome to Teen Scientist. My name is Raina Malhotra, and here on the show, I bring listeners stories of groundbreaking innovation in the STEM disciplines entirely from a teenage perspective. The program highlights local, regional, and national stories with young people and experts in their fields. Today's segment will highlight the research initiatives being done here in the Lehigh Valley, specifically addressing environmental science and climate change. Joining us first is Professor Ben Felzer of Lehigh University, who does climate and biogeochemical modeling to study terrestrial ecosystems. Welcome to Teen Scientist, Professor Felzer. Thanks for having me here. Could you start off by telling us about yourself and your educational background? Yes, I have a PhD in geological sciences and in the department at Lehigh of Earth and Environmental Sciences. Today, what used to be geology departments are now sort of looking at the entire Earth system, everything from oceanography to atmospheric sciences to geology to ecology. So the departments have become much more holistic. I'm a computer modeler, environmental modeler, so I work with the climate models that are used for future climate change projections, but I focus on the land parts of those models, the vegetation and the soils. Uh, You can think of the models as being atmosphere, ocean, land, sea ice, land ice, so I focus on the land surface components. Um, As far as my education, I have a PhD from geological sciences from Brown University, master's from University of Colorado. I was actually a physics major undergrad at Swarthmore. And what was it that sparked your interest to get you into the field of earth and environmental science? Well, I think it was my love of the outdoors. I'm an avid hiker and backpacker. And as a physics major, I was had my scientific background, but I really wanted to be studying more environmentally related issues. So it was a good match between my science background and my love for the outdoors. And you mentioned that you worked with biogeochemical modeling. What exactly is that and how does it work? So it's basically a modeling and computer modeling of carbon, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, phosphorus, those are the nutrients for plants, uh, the water cycle. So how those basic compounds cycle between the atmosphere and the vegetation and the soils. And it's basically getting at the question of the carbon sink. So how much of the CO2 that we emit and the atmosphere gets taken up by the land surface and another the ocean as well. I don't look at that component, but that's another important component. About a third or so of all the, third to a half of all the CO2 gets taken up by the land and the ocean. So we're kind of looking at, at that component. And so how have you used this form of modeling in the context of climate change? What were the results of this research? I look at not just climate change, but other human disturbances like land use and land cover change as well as natural disturbances like fire and insect damage, which may be exacerbated by climate change, actually, as well as air quality issues, particularly how ozone, for instance, affects vegetation, as well as the effect of elevated CO2 itself on the vegetation. So I look at all of these components, both historically, maybe back to the 1700s or so, into the end of the century through models, and look at how changes in these various disturbances affect the ability of the land to sequester carbon, as well as broadly affect ecosystem services. So things like crop yield, forest growth, runoff of water, your freshwater availability. So I I look at at all of these things, and they're all affected by the cycling of these biogeochemical cycling of, of constituents in our atmosphere between the land and the atmosphere. And then why are the results that you found so important to the future of environmental science? In order to understand how much carbon we can emit, 
the amount of carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere is going to determine how warm it's going to get in the future, and that will lead to other things like extremes in climate and such. And that will depend upon how much remains in the atmosphere. So we're emitting more carbon than we're taking out, more CO2 than we're taking out, and other greenhouse gases through fossil fuel combustion, through cement production, et cetera. And it's important to know how much of that is taken out so that you know how much remains in the atmosphere because that's what's going to affect climate. And if the country wants to get credits for removing CO2 from the atmosphere, then you have to know in the net, are they cutting down trees? Are they planting more trees? Uh, you know, what are the net effects of their management of agricultural areas, for example? So all those things are important. And you also worked on another major project to research the effects of climate change with a group of anthropologists. Could you explain what this project was and how it worked? The interest in this project was how do societies react to and adapt to unexpected extremes of climate this was done with the Human Relations Area Files, which is an anthropological center and database located up at, at Yale. They're cultural anthropologists, so they have a wide database of different pre-industrial societies, and, which they code up into various aspects, everything from religion to war and um, political system. And they have a system of quantifying these societies through reading reports of anthropologists or other people who spend time they're studying these societies. So the hypothesis was societies that experience unexpected extremes. So like the Nile flooding is something that occurs every year. So that would be an expected extreme, but unpredictable extremes that they're going to develop differently. We're going to be able to notice the effects on those societies. So when everything was run through, and then we looked at various indices of extreme climate, the one variable in these societies that seemed to correlate to extremes was religion, was the belief in high gods that have a control in the weather systems. And it turned out that the main controlling factor was dry climates, that climates that experience dry extremes are ones that are more likely to have a belief in, in these type of gods that can control their weather systems. This was also, we filtered out the effects of resources, the effects of the aridity on resources so that we knew it was a direct effect of the psychology of the actual unexpectedness of the, of the weather that they were experiencing. You also looked at the food shortages. So what major results did you find about the socioeconomic responses to these food shortages caused by these climate extremes? Well, the food shortages was really came out in filtering out the effects of the extreme climate on resources. These societies may experience these beliefs because they're experiencing food shortages, or do they experience them because they're directly experiencing the effect of the climate? So that's what we were trying to filter out. Maybe our original hypotheses might have been a little bit different, and we maybe felt there was a more direct effect on this, but in the end, it was religion was the one factor that came out. And, you know, that just shows you the interesting thing about doing research is sometimes I think we may be expected to find more direct effect on other variables, but that was the one that showed a result. Many people believe that we'll soon reach a tipping point that'll push the Earth's climate to a point of no return and that the Lehigh Valley specifically is facing an environmental and health crisis of its own caused by increasing air pollution. What do you have to say to the residents of the Lehigh Valley about this health hazard? We have particularly bad air pollution here largely, we think, driven by the large amount of diesel trucks that come through the area to service our warehouses here. Uh, we're also a valley, so the meteorological conditions are conducive to, at times, trapping pollutants in the valley. 
So we do have some of the worst air quality in, in Pennsylvania here. You do have to be careful about drawing the line between air quality and climate. Some air pollutants like black carbon, which is a major constituent of uh, particulate matter, does add additional warming to the climate. It's not a greenhouse gas, it's a particulate, but it warms the climate even more. But there's other pollutants like sulfate aerosols that actually reflect sunlight away and cool the climate. So I don't think climate is the major part of the story when it comes to air quality. It's just that air quality is bad for health, right? It's bad for health, it's bad for our vegetation. I guess what we're really trying to look at now is the environmental justice issue. We're trying to set up a network of air quality monitors throughout Bethlehem and the broader Lehigh Valley so we could distinguish a particularly particulate matter and when it may be coming from traffic or not to see if there is increased or poorer air quality in areas that are more underrepresented where people don't have the resources to support themselves as well or to support clean environments, you know, interior for themselves, for example, and therefore are exposed to more health hazards. We're just starting this. We haven't done this yet. Are there correlations between air quality, where air quality is worse, and asthma-related incidents in the Lehigh Valley, and how does that relate to the socioeconomic situation in the valley? So what steps can our listeners take to either mitigate the issue or protect themselves? Well, the most important thing that people can do, and this gets to both climate change in the broader global sense, as well as local air quality issues, is become politically active and get people in office who acknowledge (laughs) that climate change caused by humans is a real problem and that are willing to do something about it. You know, we could each take our personal steps and we we should. And I think people find out, I think people know by now what to do. You know, you could invest in hybrid or electric vehicles, solar panels or heat pumps to try to electrify energy source in your house. Of course, everybody does these things, and it can have a larger effect. But I think we really need to have policy at the national level to enact a large effect. As far as local air quality here in the valley, I guess we could be more cognizant. People could get more involved with development in the valley and what kind of development we want to see here. Where we want our traffic flowing? You know, do we want to restrict traffic flow from certain areas of some of the frontline communities, for example, that are more densely populated and more susceptible to the problems of asthma from the air pollution. So those are some things we might want to be looking at. As a researcher, what is the largest challenge that you faced in the fields of environmental science, and how did you overcome it? Well, uh, I'm trying to think of certainly getting funding. Getting funded is is difficult. (laughs) So to overcome it, it's important to develop collaborative networks with large research groups, and other people that are, you know, where you could bring different sets of skills together to tackle a, a common and important problem. And I would say as a climate modeler, it's important to find your niche within the modeling community. There are a lot of people that are developing some of the major climate models. And if you're not part of one of those big research groups as an independent professor, you've got to kind of figure out if you're going to use your own model, how it's going to fit into the broader scheme of things. Useful to develop your own models so you could do experiments pretty rapidly, but there's always going to be, the large climate models are going to be developed by a large network of researchers that are going to be making changes faster than you can make any one change. So I guess it's important to think about what are the scientific questions that are going to drive your research, and then how do you get there? Finally, what advice would you share with our teen listeners who are interested in pursuing a career in environmental science? I think it's important to go to college, (laughs) If you want to go into environmental science, 
You should be prepared to get a basic background in science, whether it's in chemistry or physics or, or environmental science, but you're going to need a certain amount of math or biology or chemistry, I think, to really be able to engage. But I do encourage the liberal arts. I mean, encourage to also get a well-rounded education. And then when you get to the end of your college career, then you have to think about where you're going. If, you, if graduate school is the appropriate route for you, if you want to go for a master's or a PhD, you have to think about what it is you want to do to see what is the appropriate route you want to take. Or if you, it may not be necessary to go into graduate school, there may be some interesting opportunities with consulting companies, et cetera, or in policy, for example, that you might want to take. And I know a lot of listeners may want to go more in the environmental policy direction, environmental studies, which is more policy-oriented, and that's great, too, to just be clear about the direction. I appreciate you joining us and sharing about your research. Thanks for having me. Listeners, stay put. After a quick break, we'll continue discussing more environmental research being done right here in the Lehigh Valley. This is Raina Malhotra, and you're listening to Teen Scientist. Thank you to the members of WDIY for making all of our programming possible. Becoming a member is the best way to support your listening and to ensure we'll be here for the next person in our community to discover. The many choices and real voices you hear every day would not be here without your support. Make your membership gift today by calling 610-694-8100 or at WDIY.org. Welcome to Teen Scientist on WDIY. My name is Raina Malhotra, your host tonight. Here on the show, I bring listeners stories of groundbreaking innovation in the science, technology, engineering, and math disciplines entirely from a teenage perspective. The program highlights local, regional, and national stories with young people and experts in their fields. Today's segment will highlight the research initiatives being done right here in the Lehigh Valley, specifically addressing environmental science and policy changes. Joining us is Professor Brina Holland of Lehigh University. Welcome to Teen Scientist, Professor Holland. Thanks for inviting me. Can you start off today by telling us a bit about yourself and your educational background? Sure. So as you said, my name is Brina Holland, and I have a PhD in political science. But my research and my teaching is in the area of environmental policy. And I'm especially interested in trying to make environmental policies more equitable and just This is somewhat tangentially linked to political science. I think a lot of people think of political science as more of the empirical study of political behavior and political institutions. And I'm interested in in questions about how to make those institutions more just, how to make them more equitable, how to make them more accountable and representative so that the outcomes that flow from those institutions are actually providing environmental protection to all people. What sparked your interest to get into this field? So I actually didn't study political science as an undergraduate. I went to UC Berkeley and California, and I studied environmental policy, and I also studied in um, a small program that was offers undergraduates the opportunity to learn from the law professors there, and so it was in the area of law and jurisprudence. And I guess what became increasingly clear to me is that political institutions were not doing very good at protecting the environment. And so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to study political science, because I thought, geez, we have all these constitutional protections for things like free speech, freedom of religion, but we don't actually have that kind of commitment to environmental protection so that everybody gets a certain amount of it. And um, I thought that was a major flaw in democracy, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to study political science. And you also have been part of a local research initiative that involves air quality monitoring. Can you explain exactly what this was and how it works? 
Yes, so this is an ongoing initiative, especially for me. The people that are working on the current project are um, more recently getting into the project. But um, since I've lived in the Valley since 2005, when I moved to the Lehigh Valley, I've been interested in air pollution because we have pretty bad air quality here. And so way back then, I started doing air quality monitoring. Um, what is really interesting to me in moving to this place, it being a former industrial area, is that if you go out and you ask people if they think the air quality is bad or if they know how bad the air quality is, they respond with sort of a chuckle and kind of try to minimize the problem. They say, oh, well, you should have been here when the steel mill was running and there was black suit everywhere. And they tend to think that the problem, because you can't see it, is not there. And in fact, we have really a big problem with particulate matter in the Lehigh Valley. And so um, what we are interested in doing is helping people to visualize that problem by doing air monitoring that is going to tell you what the air quality is close to where people live. The way that the government agencies monitor air quality is with two monitors that cover the entire Lehigh Valley. So if you go outside at your house, you just have no idea how bad the air quality is. You can The government can't really tell you either. They can tell you what it is near where the monitors are, but not necessarily where you live. And so this kind of um, more fine-scaled monitoring of episodic exposure um, that are based on more proximate sources of air pollution is what we're trying to do. What we hope is that we'll set up, you know, 40 monitors throughout the Lehigh Valley and use that to figure out how bad air quality is in areas where we might expect there to be problems related to truck traffic or heating oil um, or other sources of air pollution. As you probably know, because of all the warehousing, people are particularly concerned about truck traffic. But, you know, we also have highly polluting cement factories in the valley as well. So that's what we're trying to do is... Um, as a group of citizens get together and make this sort of information available to everyone in the Lehigh Valley. And you just go online and you can look up and see what the air quality is and there'll be a monitor a lot closer to your house than the ones that are currently available by the government. Absolutely. What major results do you expect to find? Well, um, we won't obviously know until we get all these monitors set up, but what I have found in doing localized air monitoring with my black carbon monitors, which is just sort of assessing um, a certain kind of particulate pollution, um, the kind that especially comes out of diesel vehicles, what I have found is that if you're standing on the street, say talking to somebody close to the source where the pollution is coming out the, of the tailpipe, you are exposed to higher levels of it. And so because we live in a valley that um, tends to have temperature inversions that trap the air pollution in the valley, and because sometimes we don't have a lot of wind that would otherwise whip whip the air pollution out of the valley, and also because we have a, still have a lot of traffic and a growing amount of traffic. I'm expecting that we'll see a lot of variation in different areas based on the newer sources of air pollution and that people in different places will be exposed to different levels. And hopefully that will lead us to may, be able to make recommendations for how to minimize exposure. And so why is this information specifically relevant to improving the quality of life for people who live in the Lehigh Valley? Well, we do have significant trouble with asthma and other respiratory disorders. We have a lot of kids that have asthma problems, and then we also have a large um, elder population, right, seniors in the Lehigh Valley, and they tend to have more vulnerable respiratory and immune systems. So understanding what you're exposed to and how to avoid it, I think, is significant. 
but it's not just for those groups it's for everybody because if you ex get exposed to a lot of air pollution you also weaken your immune system over time health quality of life issues definitely <laughs> So on top of being involved in these environmental projects, you are an author as well. For our listeners who might be interested, what is the title of your book and what is it about? It's hard to sort of put this in, in simple terms in a quick interview, but the title of my book is it's Allocating the Earth. And the subtitle is A Distributional Framework for Protecting Capabilities in Environmental Law and Policy. As I said, it's an academic book, so it's not written for the lay public, it's more for a very specialized audience, which is partly what makes it hard to summarize. But essentially, it's a book that's developing a new way of designing and evaluating environmental policies that incorporate um, attention to issues of equity in outcomes of environmental exposure and also equity in issues of access to political power and decision making. And what compelled you to write the book, given the time and commitment that the whole writing process might take? Well, if you study environmental justice for very long, these topics become very interesting to you. The problem is with environmental justice is that, you know, certain groups of people are disproportionately exposed to environmental harms. Certain groups of people have no political power in determining environmental decisions. And so the reason that is happening is because in my opinion, our environmental laws are failing us. And so my interest is was in, for that book particularly, was in trying to come up with a comprehensive framework that could be grounded in the history and political traditions of this country that would sort of tell us how to make policies more just, more equitable, um, and give people political power over environmental decisions. Right now, we don't have much political power over those decisions. And so now, as an author, what was the largest challenge or hardship that you faced during the whole writing and publishing process? It's a highly interdisciplinary project, which I hope many of your listeners will um, become scientists that are interdisciplinary. They will run into similar problems, um, which is that it's really easy to get derailed because everybody wants you to write something that's about what they do and about their area of interest. So if you're trying to do interdisciplinary work, you really have to have a sort of vision of where you're going and stick to it. And so it's really hard. You always feel like you don't know enough about what you want to know about. You always feel like people are trying to derail you to get around about to write about something that they're interested in that you're not interested in. And so finding the time and staying on track is really, really challenging when you're writing a book, especially when you're writing a book uh, while you're trying to get your career started as an academic and you have a bunch of other demands on your time. Many people believe that we're going to reach a tipping point um, that will push the Earth's climate to a point of no return and that specifically in the Lehigh Valley, we're facing an environmental and health crisis that's caused by increasing air pollution. Mm -hmm. As a researcher and professional in the field, what do you have to say to the residents of this area about this health hazard? Well, we have challenges um, because, as I said before, we're in a valley which uh, tends to trap pollution in the air. So it makes sort of normal problems of pollution control extra difficult. We also have a lot of allergens in this area that contribute to the air quality problem, and are especially for people who have asthma and other respiratory disorders. But I wouldn't say that um, it's necessarily getting worse. The pollution is different kinds of pollutants, and it's in different places. So it might be getting some better with respect to the kinds of pollutants that were emitted from industrial processes, but worse with respect to other ones. So 
I think that these problems will, of course, all be exacerbated, nevertheless, because of climate change as the temperatures get warmer and wetter in the valley. So we actually need to come together to figure out how to minimize these the sort of exposures to all kinds of different things and work collectively on it. I think it's important. I'm just trying to say that I don't necessarily think it's worse or getting worse. There's lots of things that we can do to stop it from getting worse by limiting the amount of pollution that's produced and learning how to better live our lives to avoid doing things that will trigger our respiratory negative respiratory responses. And so in general, why do you think taking action now is so important to maintaining the Earth's environmental integrity? Taking action now? Well, we certainly don't want to end up in a situation where the problem becomes so overwhelming that we can't actually do very much about it. The main thing is is that it may be coming to us later than other areas of the world, right? So taking action is important because a lot of people are already confronting significant problems from climate change and from environmental exposures. And I think of it as sort of our responsibility to help address those problems, perhaps before they hit us as hard. What is the largest challenge that you faced in the field of political science and how did you face that? Well, I think that the largest problem that I faced is that my work is really on the fringes of the discipline. So most people are doing more empirical political science, less environmental policy. And there's a big sort of effort to turn political science into something like discipline that's in the natural sciences or the hard sciences. And so people often want to employ the methods in the sciences to study politics and to do predictive analysis and descriptive analysis and not think about um, the normative questions or the questions about environmental policy in particular. So the biggest thing was finding the community of people that were interested in the things that I was interested in and then working with them. Lastly, what advice would you share with our younger listeners who might also be interested in pursuing a career in the same field? Anything in the environment is great. Your help is needed. Please come. Um, But I would say my advice would be, again, find your people, (laughs) find good mentors, people that believe in you and believe in what you're doing so you get the right kind of support. Um, Find the community of people that are interested in the same things that you're interested in and start talking to them early on because that leads to um, a whole bunch of advantages in your career um, that you will not regret getting start early on networking. And mostly it's about following your passion and finding the communities and the people that are passionate about the same things. That's my advice. Where else can our listeners go to learn more about you and your research? Well, we're going to be trying to get some of the research up um, on more of a public website that's going to come from the Air Quality Project. But if you want to track sort of this air quality project that we're doing, you can go to purpleair.com. And if you just go to their real-time air quality map and you plug in the word Bethlehem, it'll start showing you, it'll show you the monitors that are being set up in Bethlehem. Um, Some of them are already up. We've got at least 20 coming into Northampton County very soon. So you'll be able to look at that data yourself, um, try and find a monitor near your home, see what kind of pollution you're exposed to. And I can always be reached at Lehigh University. Thank you so much, Professor Holland, for making the time to join us today. It's been so amazing to learn more about your work in the fields of political science. I appreciate the invitation. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in today. I'm Rain Malhotra, and I'll see you next time on Teen Scientist. 